Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are a Jesus community telling the biggest story of God in Los Angeles. We're excited that you're joining the conversation with us today. Enjoy. With that said, Josh Cobia, who is uh, one of our care pastors and recovery pastor, we preach today. Uh, Josh is on staff, used to lead another church in Santa Monica for a long time. We've known each other for years. Uh, I love you. I appreciate you. I know you have a lot of wonderful things to say. I can see you're already emotional and ready to do this. Yeah. And so I'm going to stop talking. Josh Cobia, everybody. Uh, So that I can compose myself and not cry in front of Corey and everybody, uh, we're going to go into conversation right now because that's what we do at New Abbey. So your questions starting it out real light, and we're going to be talking about some deep stuff today. So this will help you. Uh, What are your assumptions about who, where, and what? you should be at this moment in your life. Meet a stranger, tell them your life story. There you go, get into groups, and we'll be right back. Um, Well, thank you all. It's a really big, like, privilege to be able to do this, to be able to speak in front of you, to be able to actually, like, talk. Um, My wife, Chelsea, and I have been here at New Abbey for about a year, I think. I don't honestly, it's very fuzzy, but I think it was because it was COVID, like the time doesn't exist. Um, so about a year. Uh, but before that, like Corey was my, um, my church planting in the church world. We call it planting. I don't know why. No other business calls it that. It's like startup. Um, he was my coach for like six years. Uh, so Corey, <laughs> Corey has seen me through like a number of different crises, if that's a word, uh, in my life, uh, and it's really helped me. So it's been a gift. And then, um, you know, this church has been a gift. So uh, before we get started, because I know a lot of you, you might know my story. I've been an interesting person twice. I think both of those are because Corey didn't book anyone in last minute. He was like, can you be the interesting person? <laughs> uh, so I've told my story up here before, um, and I don't want to get too in the weeds on it because we don't have a lot of time. Uh, but I do want to just frame myself well so that you guys know who I am so it's not just a stranger talking about Jesus to y'all. So uh, this is a picture of me and my little fam. That's me. That's my beautiful wife, Chelsea. And then <laughs> I'm actually, <laughs> this is blown up for the first time, and I'm now seeing my dog's wearing a pirate hat. I didn't know that. Uh, but that's my dog, Baloo. Uh, he has my heart. And um, yeah, the major thing that I want to talk about this morning is that... Uh, I almost lost all of that. In fact, I was very, very close to losing all of that. And it was because of the rhythm and the way that I was living my life and the things that I sort of stepped into. There's this amazing um, line in Dante's Inferno. Uh, Dante's Inferno is where we get like the notion of hell, which a lot of you are probably still recovering from. Um, But there's there's this line where Dante talks about how in the middle of life, in the middle of his living portion, right, before he descends into all these different realms, uh, he says, I, I, I lulled asleep and I walked into a forest and it was so thick that I could not tell the trees from the forest. And I don't know how I got there because I fell asleep. Because I fell asleep. And to me, there's really no more accurate depiction of what alcoholism and addiction and all that kind of stuff can do. It's not that, like, you know, I woke up one morning and said, you know what I want to do for, like, the next two years? I want to become, like, a really bad alcoholic. Like, that's not, <laughs> that's not in, in the playbook, especially for a pastor, right? Uh, but what happened is, like, micro step by micro step by micro step. I'm just noticing, Noah was like, are you going to pace this morning? And I was like, nah, I'm going to stay completely still, and I just took steps. Anyway, sorry, Noah. Um, 
micro step, micro step, micro step, you realize that you fell asleep. And then you pop up and you're like, how the hell did I get here? And that's really what happened. And so I found myself in this really sort of dark place. Again, I don't want to get too in the weeds, but basically what happened is I got to a point uh, where my body was actually physically addicted to the substance of alcohol. Physically addicted to the substance of alcohol. Now, I didn't know that could happen. I knew you could get, like, addicted. My grandfather was a huge uh, alcoholic, and I used to think of him as, like, this big sinner, and now I realize, like, man, he was probably better than I was. Uh, he actually missed my dad's wedding because he got too drunk on a flight, and so they had to take him to the hospital. And that story was told in our family for years. Like, be careful, be careful, because you could end up here. Be careful, because this is in you. Be careful, be careful, be careful. And so I took that really seriously when I was a kid. Like, so from, like, age zero, because <laughs> who's drinking when they're a baby? Anyway, age zero to, like, 21, I didn't have a single drink. And I played in bands, and I played in bars. I was playing in bars, signed in a band from when I was 15, and offered drinks constantly. One of my favorite stories is uh, I was playing this, uh, this club in San Francisco called Slims, which is this really cool sort of intimate space. And we were opening up for a bigger band. And I'm like 17 at the time or something. And so we, we play our set. And I get off stage. Uh, and, and at this time, this is like the, the phase of like MySpace. Like no one even had a website, but I had a MySpace. We had flyers with our MySpace on it. And I was handing them out to people. And I get to the front of the stage, and the next band's playing. And this girl goes like, just and I was like, Part, what? Pardon me? You want some water? And she puts out a water bottle. And I was like, water? I've just been on stage for like an hour. Yes, I'd love some water. Pop it open. It was vodka. <laughs> right? And so I, I drank it. But I was a good Southern Baptist Christian boy. I don't dance. I don't drink. Even on stage. That's not happening. So I held it in my mouth all the way back. But I still didn't. I wanted to look like a rock star. I wanted to look cool. So I held it in my mouth and I'm still passing out flyers like all the way back down to the bathroom. Like, and I had to spit it out in the bathroom. That's how dedicated I was to not drinking. And then around age 21, life happens. And again, it was just like this slow lulling to sleep. But I've actually come to look at that phase in my life as a gift, as sort of like weird as that is. And we're going to get into sort of why that is the case this morning. Um, but I really want to thank this church because there's no other space. And I really mean this. There's no other space that that little crew that we had a picture of could have healed besides this church for us. That's really the case. Because a space like this is so open and beautiful and loving that it actually gave us the time to heal. It actually gave us the time to become ourselves again. It gave me the time to put together a little bit of sobriety and actually feel like my own self again. So I want to thank this church for everything that they've done. And this morning, yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about addiction. We're going to talk a lot about addiction. We're going to talk about a dark night of the soul. We're going to talk about, like, legion. Corey always has that, like, really cool little list and said we're going to talk about some things. This is my list today. It, <laughs> It looks like that of a serial killer, so I don't really want to get into it too deep. Um, but I just want to, I do want to kind of call attention to something. Um, how many of y'all knew that it's National Recovery Month? That's about right, right? Was that like five people in a group of close to 100-something, right? How many people knew that uh, National Overdose Day was this month? About the same number of people, Right? 170,000 people will die this year. 130 people will die today 
That's the kind of pandemic we're dealing with. That's the kind of craziness we're dealing with when it comes to addiction and to alcoholism. It's an enormous issue. One in 10 of all Americans will struggle with some form of addiction in their lives in the course of their lives. One in 10. But I often think, and I think especially in church too, we don't like to talk about that. And that's why this stuff doesn't get a lot of play because it's too close. Like, uh uh-oh, could I be one of those? (laughs) I spent years going like, that's not me, I'm drinking in the shower. But anyway, (laughs) it's not me, right? And it might not be you, but it might be a friend or it might be a family member. And the most shocking thing to me when I was going through like the darkest night of my soul was that when I turned to the church community at large, there wasn't a lot going on in terms of help. Like I learned that really pastors didn't know where to point you where to go. My family, when I was in like the worst part of it, like we had to hop on the phone with all of these different recovery and treatment centers and detoxes and places and figure out and navigate it. And you're like six months in and your family is like hundreds of thousands of dollars in before you even realize what the right place and the right time and the right thing to do is. That's how crazy this world is. And I want to reclaim that for the church. I would love it if the church was the first place that you came to if someone is struggling with addiction because that's what it should be. There should be resources. The church doesn't need to keep recovery in the basement, (laughs) which is what it often does, right? But thank God for those basements. (laughs) I mean, those basements do incredible things and the groups that meet them do amazing things. Amazing, amazing things. Here's a prayer that we, we pray in some of those groups, and I'd love it if we all prayed it together. It goes like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. What's so cool about that prayer is that we can pray that right here in a church space, and in in a crazy, awesome, open church space like we are, and then right now, all the way across the globe, this is being prayed in different languages, in different tongues, it's being prayed in different spaces, and I'll tell you the truth, it's definitely being prayed in the rooms of recovery, and it's doing something to those people who are praying it. And I can tell you, I've sat in a lot of these rooms, people don't give a shit about who they're praying to most of the time when they do this, right? But these words and this rhythm, it points us to something else. There are 72 words, 14 lines in this prayer that wakes something up in our souls that can't be described. 72 words, 14 lines, that's it. That's what Jesus actually gave to people when they said, hey, how do we pray? And Corey's been talking all about sort of like the Beatitudes he started last week, and and you've heard it said, but I tell you. And so this you heard it said idea to I tell you, this is his version of prayer. When his disciples asked him like, hey, how do you pray? They're expecting like a full sit down, full day deal of like, okay, this is how you pray. You're going to say this certain word. You're going to be in this position. You got to be wearing this right thing. You got to eat these foods before you come in here. And don't forget the ritual bath before you do that. All of that, right? That's what they're expecting. But when Jesus teaches these disciples how to pray, it's 14 lines, 72 words. It's like a long tweet, right? It's easy to remember. 
And so what's really crazy about this prayer is that when you go through the way that the Bible is translated and the actual languages that it's written down, the earliest texts that we have of Scripture include this prayer, not in Hebrew and not in Greek, not the languages that we would expect to be in the Bible, but in Aramaic. You know what's cool about that is that Aramaic was the common tongue that Jesus would have spoke most of the time. By the time Jesus comes along, Hebrew would have been what you would speak in the synagogues and in the temple and all that kind of stuff, and Greek would have, would have been like what the sort of richer folk of the day would have spoken. It was kind of the scholastic language of the day. But Aramaic was the common tongue. Aramaic would have been the language that a group of dirty fishermen that Jesus comes around and picks up and says, you're my disciples now, and they go, yeah, would have spoken to each other. It would have been Aramaic. So what God is doing, what Jesus is doing through this prayer is to say that, like, when you pray, I want you to pray in your own language. I want you to pray in what's closest to you, what really means the most to you. And I really think what Jesus is doing with that is he's moving this head knowledge, right, which is a lot of what I had in terms of bringing my spirituality into my recovered life. It was like, I've got a lot of this head knowledge, right? It's all up here. And it took me forever to get that knowledge from here to here. From here to here. In my recovery, I worked something that's called the 12 steps, which you probably heard about. And I always viewed those like 12 steps as just like walking, kind of like these are the 12 steps that it takes and you're walking. But really for me, in my personal journey, the 12 steps were 12 steps from right here to right here. And they helped me put all of this knowledge, all this intellectual stuff into my heart and actually embody it. In Christianity, in Jesus' terms, we call this incarnational, right? It's living and breathing within us. But we get caught up in this head knowledge stuff so much. I grew up, my dad was a pastor. Uh, All my uncles are pastors. They're all pastors in the South. My dad was the first one to come to crazy California. And he moved to Sacramento, which is basically the South. But anyway, we went to Sacramento. (laughs) And I spent a time there, right? And, uh, and, and back in the day, my parents were, and my dad has since, he's had his own progression of faith and everything, and he's, he's landed in a really cool space. Like, I had a conversation with him the other day, and I was like, whoa, <laughs> where, where did you come from? Still very Southern Baptist, still all that, but he's thinking. He's still thinking, right? What a beautiful concept. The faith keeps growing. But at that time, we were homeschooled. I wasn't allowed to go trick-or-treating at Halloween, right? Like, I heard legend of people going out and getting these full-size candy bars, and I was like, how do I get there, <laughs> right? Like, I wasn't allowed to do any of that. I wasn't allowed to see a movie that wasn't PG. I grew up in these houses. <laughs> when Anchorman came out, my parents used to buy these videos from this little, like, like online, or it wasn't online, it was a magazine at that point, distribution center, where it would, like, bleep out all the bad words, or it would just edit them out altogether. So we had a copy of Anchorman. Do you know how Anchorman, how long Anchorman is with all those? It's 43 minutes long, (laughs) 43 minutes. And I used to watch it so often, right? 43 minutes. That's the kind of environment that I grew up in, right? That's the kind of environment I grew up in. And so when I was a kid, but I loved it. I got to tell you the truth. Like as a kid, that structure, that sort of like environment, like I latched to it. And the reason was I had crazy ADD and I wasn't any good in school. And I hadn't picked up an instrument yet. That didn't come until later. So I didn't really know my place. But for some reason in Sunday school classes, I would raise my hand and I would remember these Bible facts, these things about Jesus, and I could actually spew them back. And so for the first time in my life, teachers, these Sunday school teachers, really took a liking to me. I guarantee you without those Sunday school teachers, I'm not on this stage right now, right? They actually looked and went like, oh, 
he kind of knows some stuff. And all it was is because, like, I'm growing up in a pastor's family, and, like, my dad makes me read the Bible for, like, 20 minutes a night, right? Like, it wasn't, like, anything special or anything like that, but I was able to kind of speed these things off. The ultimate culmination of that was Awana. Who here was in Awana? More of you than knew what About Addiction Month was, so that's really crazy. Uh, Awana, in the little version, is called Sparks. When you're a little tiny tyke, you go to this thing called Sparks. We are Sparks for Jesus. I still remember the song. Anyway, Sparks is like uh, Boy Scouts for the evangelical community. I wasn't allowed to go to Boy Scouts either because apparently there's something evil lurking in there. Anyway, uh, Sparks was available. So I went to Sparks, and I'm like five years old, and I'm like, I've memorized all of these scripture passages, and I'm going in, and like you get a little piece of candy and stuff like for like doing that and everything, and I was very rewards-based. So I was like, oh, this is really good. But the crown jewel of my evangelical like kingdom was the fact that I was going to get a sash and I was going to get a badge that said spark for Jesus, right? I was going to get this thing. And so I, uh, I go to uh, this, that, well, before, before this, uh, I ate a meal of my favorite meal, which is like uh, warm SpaghettiOs. At this time, warm SpaghettiOs was my favorite thing in the whole world. So I eat this massive meal of warm SpaghettiOs. It's awards night. I'm about to get this sash, right? I'm about to get this, this thing that's going to validate me. I'm going to heaven because of the sash, right? Like, these are the things I'm thinking about. And I'm like, stoked. I'm just woofing down these Cheerios, not Cheerios, uh, SpaghettiOs. And, uh, and I'm on the car ride. We're in our, like, Dodge 93 caravan. We're rolling to this, uh, this evangelical service. I get in the front row, right? And then my buddy Jacob is sitting right next to me. I don't like Jacob. He kind of smells weird, but Jacob is here and he's with me and we're about to get our sash together. And the person starts to do the announcements and they have to go through all the preamble and all this stuff. And I'm just like ready to go. And then my stomach starts feeling really weird. Like these SpaghettiOs have made a resurrection moment inside my body, (laughs) right? And so I kind of like go... And I'm cool. Jacob hasn't noticed. Nothing is good, but I've burped and it doesn't smell good, right? <laughs> um, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I just go, and SpaghettiOs everywhere. It looks like something out of The Exorcist. It's disgusting. There are little O's. They hadn't digested. I'd just been woofing down. I still remember this so vividly. And I literally thought, I was like, okay, just stay calm. There's a chance no one saw this. <laughs> and then Jacob next to me turns to me and goes, ew! And I'm like, Jacob, shut up! Like, right? And, and every, all the kids start going, ah, and this man comes and he swoops me up and he throws me on his shoulder. And I have the vivid memories of going like, ah, because I didn't get my sash, right? Never got that sash. That might have been the moment I started deconstructing my faith. <laughs> Never got that sash. But it was all about head knowledge for me. And that continued. That continued even into what I thought was my deconstructive phase. I did that like after seminary. I went to a Golden Gate Seminary, which is a Southern Baptist theological seminary. And in it, I had to take a class that said, Hell, the fiery eternal pit. And I thought, maybe this is a little off base, (laughs) right? And so I did my deconstruction stuff, and I went through a real crisis. Drinking hadn't even entered the scene yet, but I went through a really big sort of crisis of faith, and then I came back around. But what I learned through my addiction and through my, like, hurting times was that like I hadn't internalized all of it it hadn't gone from here to here what it took was a dark night of the soul a dark night of the soul and a lot of us throw around that dark night of the soul thing I can't tell you how many times in my sort of like last two years therapists coaches spiritual people have told me you're going through a dark night of the soul and I was like I know exactly what that means right head knowledge But the dark night of the soul doesn't work in the head. It works in the heart. 
The dark night of the soul is actually like a friend. John of the Cross says that the dark night of the soul is more lovelier than the dawn. More lovely than the dawn. Lovelier is not a word John of the Cross would use. (laughs) More lovely than the dawn. Meaning the darkness was actually more kind than the dawn. Because it tells the truth of where you are. This is my definition of the dark night of the soul. Dark night definition, dark night def, um, is a true dark night of the soul is not a surface challenge, but a development that obscures your life in such a way that a return uh, to, a, to a return of a journey of joy, everything must change. Everything must change. We have this phrase in the rooms of recovery that like, you don't have to change anything, you just have to change everything. <laughs> everything must change, metanoia. It's this phrase, and Jesus keeps coming back to this when he's like, you've heard it said this way. You've heard the story this way. I want to tell you that the story really looks like this. That's what the dark night of the soul does for you. It says you see your world, right? You see your life. You see the things that you deem as important. You see the sash and awana, right? You see these crown jewels that you think, this is all I'm living for. And the dark night comes along and says, no, 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 no. This isn't what you're living for. This is what you're living for. This is what you're living for. You're living over here. I was going to do this whole story of, uh, of demon possession and all that kind of stuff. We can skip that for this morning because we're running late on time. Uh, but what I do want to say is like, there's a story. Yeah, screw it. Uh, there's a story <laughs> called Legion in the Bible. Uh, and Jesus shows up uh, on these shores and he sees this man who's been going through an intense dark night of soul. We won't go line by line like I was going to do, which would have taken like three or four hours anyway. Uh, but what we will do is I will tell you that this man right? When Jesus shows up on the scene, he's really banged up. He's living among the tombs. People have kicked him out. There's a line in there that says like he was chained up and he was so chained up, uh, but, but the people couldn't keep him down. He had to break, he was breaking free of these chains. So these people, they cared about him. There's some care in there, right? Like they didn't just put him to death, <laughs> which is kind of like in that time, they'd be like, well, just kill him. <laughs> we don't know what happens. Just kill him. You know, maybe they were afraid he was going to haunt them. I don't know, but they didn't kill him. They kept him in exile. And they send him out, and he's living among the tombs. And basically what that means, by the time Jesus gets on the scene, this guy's been living among the dead, which basically means he is a walking, living picture of death. He's a walking, living picture of death. And there's this whole awesome exchange, uh, which you can read. It's called the Bible. It's really good. Take a look at it. Um, there's this whole interaction between them in which Jesus looks at, uh, at this man who's suffering and says, what is your name? And the man says, my name is Legion because we are many. And the really crazy part about that is that he's not really talking to the man, right? He's talking to this person that's so consumed with the crazy that's going on inside of them that the affliction becomes what they name themselves. In terms of recovery, I say, my name is Josh and I'm an alcoholic. I don't say I'm an alcoholic because there are many, <laughs> Right? I lead with my name, and then I lead with the thing that I have to deal with for the rest of my life, but I name it. And the powerful moment between Jesus and this man who's suffering all this is that he gives him the dignity to say, what's your name? And then the guy says, Legion, and then he just deals with the affliction. There's this whole dramatic thing where he sends them to this huge herd of pigs, which is you know, a political statement and all that kind of stuff. You can look it up. Again, Bible, really great thing to be reading. Anyway. He goes in these herd of pigs, over 2,000 pigs are where Jesus sends this legion of demons, 2,000. People get really hung up on the pigs, 
right? My brother's a vegan. He can't stand the story of the pigs. Like, what's going on with the pigs? But to me, when I read that story today, I look at it and I go, oh my God, that guy was dealing with such stuff internally. That's what it looks like when it's turned out on the outside. That all of that damage, all of that destruction, all of that death is just living inside of this person. And Jesus has the compassion to look him in the eye and say, no, 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 this is not who you will remain. I will heal you and I will show the rest of the world what you've been dealing with on the inside. You are not broken. What is afflicting you is. You are not broken. You've heard it said, you're broken. My name is Legion. I'm telling you, you're a living, walking miracle. You're a living, walking miracle. And then all these townspeople come back because their pigs are dead, right? <laughs> so like, what's going on? And what's remarkable is that they see this man, and it says he's clothed in his right mind, which means he's covered, which means before he was naked, uncovered. The Hebrew word for that is gala, which means exile, which means shame, which means Jesus had the dignity to say, why don't you get covered up, recovered, <laughs> right? Recovered. And they see him clothed and in the right mind, and they get very scared and they get very afraid. And that is the natural reaction when you see someone in recovery that you know who has been at this space where you see them and you're like, I can't believe that's Josh. <laughs> I don't know that guy. And you come back and you're really afraid and you ask Jesus to leave because you can't trust that maybe that person had this spiritual change, this psychic change that's actually changed them. And now they're sitting there and in their right mind and they're clothed and they're recovered. And whoa. Can't believe it's beyond belief. And so to ensure that belief could happen, ensure that the miracle is there, Jesus tells this guy who's like, hey, can I come with you? <laughs> He's like, don't leave me here with these people. They're the ones that chained me. They're the ones that did all this stuff to me because they didn't know how to deal with me. And Jesus says, no, 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 this is so important. He says, go home, go home, go home. And in these years of turmoil and trying to figure this out, which I don't have it figured out, by the way, guys. Like, I've got nothing figured out. All I can offer you is that that voice, that still small voice that's within me, that voice that I could hear at like five in the sash, <laughs> but not so much. That voice has just continually said, go home, stay where you are, go home. And that go home to me has been the church. Like I went through this whole crisis where I was like, I don't know what I should do. Maybe I should work in recovery. Maybe I should, maybe I should become a musician again. That was a bad idea. Maybe I should like do this. Maybe I should do that. And all that's been coming up with me is go home, go home, go home, go home, go home. Stay home. I'll end with this one last story. Because that rhythm of going home is very uncomfortable. Like, I don't want to stay around the people that saw me at my worst. That's not fun, <laughs> Right? I'm going to go move somewhere else with a totally different set of new friends that don't know what I was like during that time. But that's not the miracle of God. The miracle of God is, is actually like coming close to all of that damage and saying, no, there's a new way to live. You've heard it say, but I tell you this. But this journey has not been all sunshine and rainbows. And to be honest with you, it's been very difficult. It's been very hard. And I've been very angry during a lot of it. And I was so angry this one particular day, a couple days ago, that little guy in the pirate hat, my dog, uh, I was taking him on a walk, right? And I live on Topanga. It, oh, that slide where it said where Staten Island was, that's where I live now. Um, <laughs> I live on Topanga, uh, which is like a highway, 
It's just really brutally like fast and the cars don't stop. They don't care that you live. That's just Los Angeles. <laughs> Whenever anyone's on a bike, I'm like, you brave, brave soul. You must not be from here. Um, we live on Topanga and my dog always wants to take a beeline because the, the neighborhood is nicer on the other side of this Topanga thing. And he's a bougie dog. He was raised in Santa Monica. So he wants to go to the nicer side of the tracks, right? And he wants to go where the grass is greener and he can pee on everything. That's just like his goal. He always just tries to make a beeline, a beeline, like right across this traffic. And I always have to like yank him back. And I'm frustrated in this day because a lot of things have happened and I'm, I'm pissed off at where I am in life. I'm pissed off. Because the story I'm telling myself, I'm not listening to the bigger story. I'm just telling myself the story of like, you're in this place. You're a bad person. You shouldn't be in this place. You should be over here. You should do all of this. You're never going to get there. Why am I not there? Why am I not over there? And I'm yanking my dog back. I'm yanking my dog back, and I'm mad. And then all of a sudden, there's a traffic light that's two blocks up, and I have to get there to get him to this better side. And so I scream at my dog like any rational person would do, and I say, don't you understand? We're going exactly where you want to go. We just have to go my way. And with that, I said, oh, shit. <laughs> Oh no, <laughs> we're going exactly where you want to go. We just have to go my way. That's the journey of faith. That's why this stuff works, is that there's a bigger story, a better story that God's telling, and it may be difficult to live inside of that, but God is always going to just sort of pat us on the back and go, no, you're, you're good. I'm going to take care of you. Whether you can trust that right now or not, I'm still gonna take care of you. What a miracle. You're literally standing in that sort of miracle right now. And so to close, I want us to go through this question uh, together in your groups. It's what's holding you back from God's bigger story? What's holding you back from God's bigger story? Go ahead and get in your groups and yeah, have a discussion. Thanks for listening to the New Abbey Podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.